Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Well, interestingly enough, this morning we're going to look at the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so, in a sense, it's an eternal subject, isn't it? We'll never uh, come to an end of it. We're going to start in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to think of uh, the glories of the Lord Jesus uh, past, the fact that he went to the cross, what is often called the Passion. Uh, the word Passion comes from a Latin word. It means to endure or to suffer. And so often referred to, especially in liturgical terms, uh, the Passion of the Christ. Uh, we'll think of that, the glory of the cross. Think of his present glory, the position he now occupies that he has been given, as we read about in John 17. And then the prospect, uh, what is often referred to as the parousia. Parousia just means the presence or the coming. And uh, think of what that will be when we will see him in all his glory. So we're going to start in John chapter 12, and thinking of the, of the cross, the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he endured and what he went through. And so in verse 23 we read, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it uh, said that it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now the judgment of this world... Uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to himself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. He goes on to talk about the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now just a devotional thought. This is the third reference in John to being lifted up. Uh, the Lord Jesus to Nicodemus referred to the serpent in the wilderness and said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There is the, the wonder of it, the fact that that picture in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. In John chapter 8, he referred to being lifted up. He was talking about the witnesses to him, the witness of Moses, the witness of the word of angels of the Father, his own witness. And he said, uh, when I be lifted up, you will know. And so the witness of his death, and here is the wonder of it, isn't it? That when he is lifted up, he will draw all, or the wealth of it rather, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men uh, to himself. But here, at the end of his public ministry, in a sense, he's going to enter the upper room, and the, the last uh, night of his, his life, uh, he proclaims here, that he would be glorified. And then he has this conversation with his father. And the verse 28, the request that you glorify your name, the response, 
that uh, indeed uh, that has happened and he will glorify it uh, again. Uh, with that in mind, just turn over to John 13. And uh, Billy didn't know that I was going to talk on this this morning, but he read these verses uh, in the first uh, meeting, uh, verse 31. So when Jesus had gone out, or when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And so he's anticipating the cross. Now it's interesting when you think of the glory that we've seen so far in John's gospel. In the first three gospels, what we call synoptic gospels that give an overview of the life of the Lord. Glory is associated as birth, Glory to God on high, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. Glory is associated with his second coming, Matthew 24. He will come with clouds and great glory, power and great glory. And those are really the, the bookends of uh, what is presented in those first three Gospels. But in John's Gospel, there are perhaps seven references uh, to glory through it. We've looked at some as moral glory, uh, we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and of his fullness, we all receive grace and even more grace. And then even this morning in uh, John 2 verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. It was a display uh, of his power. So he had a personal glory, just the way he was and lived, the grace that uh, was about him, but there was a power that he had as well. Uh, in John uh, chapter 8, he refers to a previous glory. Isaiah said, saw my glory, past glory. And we saw that in Isaiah chapter 6. Now here in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he's looking at the cross and the glory of the cross. And for us who are saved, we can understand and appreciate the glory of, of the cross. But for the unsaved and and, uh, you know, for the, even in the culture of that day, there was nothing about the cross that would have been outstanding. For the Jewish people, it was the curse, right? Cursed is every man that hangs on the tree. Now, it's interesting, in Deuteronomy, when that is, is given, just before that, it talks about a disobedient son. If somebody has a disobedient son, they won't listen, they're rebellious, you can take them to the gate, report them to the elders, and take them out, and they can be killed. I don't know if there's an instant instance in all of Jewish history where that happened, where a parent said, we've reached that point, we don't want them uh, anymore. Don't worry, Ty, it's Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament. Uh, so I don't think it ever, ever happened. But there you have the obedient son, and immediately following that passage comes this thought, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. And of course, that was true of the Lord Jesus. Now in the Old Testament, traditionally in Jewish uh, capital punishment, it was by stoning. And then if there was a further act of desecration, a further act of humiliation, that body would be hung on a tree before it was buried as a public spectacle. But they didn't use crucifixion in this sense. But here, uh, it predicted of him, and it come true of him, the obedient son, who always did the will of his father, yet he hangs on a tree and he becomes the curse uh, for us. And so, uh, the Jews would look at the cross as a place of the curse. For the Romans, it was a place of punishment. It was one of the, apparently one of the cruelest ways that a person uh, could die, especially in the Middle East when you think of the heat of the day. 
And you think of the fact that the Lord Jesus really had nothing to drink for, who knows, 16, 18, 20, 20 hours before he was on the cross. Nothing to eat, nothing uh, to drink uh, for that long a time. So you dehydrate, your, your lungs would start to collapse. It was extremely painful. You read Psalm 22 and you get some sense of the, of the agony of the cross. But to the Romans, it was a, just an apt way of, of giving not only punishment, but a, a picture, a warning to people that this is what will happen. This is what can happen if you rebel, if you, uh, you know, turn against the state. Uh, to Satan and his demonic realm, it would look like victory. Uh, Satan had tried down through the years. Uh, we see it in the Old Testament, Pharaoh and uh, Haman, and trying to get rid of the Jewish people and destroy that line. But it was preserved. Well, here, now at the cross, finally, there's a victory uh, to be won. And to the demonic host, it would appear, I'm sure, well, this is it. We finally have won uh, the victory. But we look back at the cross and we say, no, the it displays in a remarkable, majestic way the, the real glory of God. And so the Lord Jesus talking about going to the cross, talked about the glory that would be there and the glory that would, would follow uh, that uh, event. So when we think of the, the cross, we think of the display of God's love and how glorious that is. And we've thought of that uh, this morning, the greatness of God's uh, love, what behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. We think of how miraculous and wonderful and great that love is, and there it is displayed at the cross that God sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Remarkable. God commended His love toward us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We'll we'll never get over that. We think of the cross, the glory of the cross, it displays in a remarkable way the, the love of God uh, to us. But it also, in a remarkable way, uh, fulfills Old Testament types and pictures and shadows, doesn't it? When you, when you think of how God arranged things, the tabernacle, the offerings, the sacrifices, everything that he uh, gave in structure for Israel, how they spoke really of, of Christ. And, you know, the five offerings in Leviticus uh, have a great significance. The first three were, were voluntary offerings. They were acts of worship, but they really spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. The burnt offering was voluntary. It was a blood sacrifice. Well, he voluntarily came and gave himself. The second offering was a meal offering, uh, you know, a perfect uh, addition to uh, the burnt offering. And it, of course, speaks of the life, the perfect life of the Lord Jesus. But the peace offering speaks of what he has accomplished. Uh, the fact that he is our peace, has reconciled us to God. And so we look at those types and shadows through the Old Testament, and we've alluded to a number of them. We see fulfillment at the cross, and we marvel at how could it be that these things could happen? One of the things that impresses me, and I try to impress on people when we're looking at Old Testament types and pictures, uh, these things are not coincidence. They're written on the pages of history. And there they are uh, in black and white, and then they're fulfilled 
at the cross and uh, fulfilled in so many ways, so many prophecies in scripture fulfilled. And so these uh, pictures are wonderfully fulfilled at the cross and that's to the glory of God. Prophecies were fulfilled at the cross. There are things that happened there that the Lord Jesus could not control himself. The fact that he was pierced. Zechariah says, they'll look on him whom they pierced. Well, how would Zechariah know that? He's writing uh, 515 uh, years before the birth of Christ, uh, and yet he says, they'll look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him. So how did he know that? Uh, Psalm 22, David writing a thousand years before, they pierced my hands and my feet. How could they possibly know those things? Uh, they gambled, he said, for the, <clears throat> the garments, took his coat. How would the, the psalmist know those types of things? So you, you look at the cross and you see the glory of God displayed in a wonderful way that there at the cross, all those prophetic passages come true about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable. You know, some of the critics will say, well, he did some things because he knew what the scripture said. So he knew the scriptures talked about thirst, and so he said, I thirst. He knew the scriptures said certain things, so he did those. But there's so many things that were beyond, we might say, his control, in a sense, others did it to, the, to him that were fulfilled. And so prophecy fulfilled. But you think of the, the work of redemption and all that was accomplished at the cross as well. The fact that he, he paid the price for us, that there had to be a, a sacrifice, there had to be a price paid uh, for us. And he did that at the cross. That was the, the place where that sacrifice was, was made. You think of Genesis 22, uh, that ram taking Isaac's place, substitution. He took our place. We deserve to be on that cross, but he took our place. Uh, we read that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now in scripture, it never says that God needs to be reconciled. He never moved. We need to be reconciled, but he did the work in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Uh, he has reconciled us. You read in Romans chapter 4, we have that privilege. Romans 5.10, we've been reconciled uh, to God. That's where we are uh, today. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful thing when we think of the cross and all that was accomplished uh, there. When you think of a verse like Psalm 85, verse 10, uh, mercy and truth have met each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You meditate on that this week and think of that, that mercy and truth, I mean, they are, in a sense, would be seem to be opposites, right? Uh, truth demands a penalty. Truth demands something happen. Mercy is forgiveness. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace would seem again to be in contrast, but they have kissed each other. They're at the cross uh, where uh, these, things, these things happen. But he also won a great victory, didn't he? When you read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it was by death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil and freed all those who were life, through their lifetime were subject to bondage through fear. He, he gained a great victory. In Colossians 2, we read that uh, in his triumph, he triumphed over principalities and powers, making a show of them openly. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated 
the demonic hosts. He won a tremendous victory at the cross. And so we look at the cross and we think of the, uh, the glory uh, associated with the, the cross. And of course, we think of our salvation. We looked in Ephesians chapter uh, 1 last week. Uh, our salvation is to the praise of the glory of his grace. It goes back to the cross. And so we think of the passion of Christ, and it's the glory of God displayed, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed. And it's a wonderful thing to consider that, that he was glorified. It wasn't defeat. It wasn't the end. It was, it is finished. And there's the glory of the cross. And we will glory uh, forever. We sometimes sing glory, glory, everlasting be to him who bore the cross. And that'll be true uh, for us. Now let's go to John 17. There are things that have happened to the Lord Jesus as a result of his earthly experience. We heard this morning from the book of Hebrews, uh, he learned obedience through the things he suffered, being made perfect. Experientially, he did things. He uh, went through things and demonstrated uh, things. And so as a result of his life and death and finished work, some things happened to him. A good illustration can be found in 1 Samuel 17, 25, where David's going to go fight Goliath. And uh, the, he asks the question, well, what will be done for the person that kills the giant? What's done for the man? And three things as a result were, were told him. First of all, he'd be... Uh, enriched with great riches. Secondly, he'd be given a king's daughter, a, a bride. And thirdly, his family would be free from taxes in Israel. And so as a result of a victory, he gained prominence. He was enriched. He became a captain over uh, Saul's army. He did receive uh, a bride. Now, of course, he was rejected ultimately. But Christ has got all that and more, hasn't he? When we think of what he gained as a result of going to the cross, the result of that finished work and his exaltation uh, to, to glory where he occupies that place. And so in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, 21, we read the fact that he's been exalted and given a, a place above every place, above all principalities and powers and dominions. He's been given the highest and the most exalted place. He's, given, he's been given uh, the glory. And so... That's where he is. He's been given a name that's above every name. Remember in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, uh, when they looked at Stephen, they, they saw radiance about him. But when he was dying, as he was going to be stoned to death, he looked up and he saw the glory of God and he saw the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was a wonderful scene. Uh, why that Stephen experienced that, others haven't in that way, but he, he recounted, he gave that just before he died, that I see the heavens open and the glory of God, and I see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand, the majesty on high. God is able to do that, obviously. Uh, there's an interesting account, um, Olive Fleming Liefeld. So Olive Fleming was Pete Fleming's wife. Uh, he was killed in January of 1956 in Ecuador uh, with Jim Elliott. Uh, she went back to Ecuador, I think in 1998, and wrote an account. And uh, 
She talked to some of the women who'd been in the bush and watched as the, the five men were killed. And they, they said something that uh, didn't show up in Through Gates of Splendor and the Edge of the Spear, uh, Elizabeth Elliot's and Nate Saint's book, or Steve Saint's book. The, uh, they told her that when that happened, they saw a choir in heaven. And they said when they'd heard the hallelujah chorus, they said that's what was transpiring. So that came out 40 years after the fact. Uh, it obviously perhaps wasn't told to Elizabeth Elliot, but for some reason when all of Fleming Liefeld was there, they told her that story. Uh, remarkable, isn't it, that that would, that would happen. They had no framework. Uh, There's nothing they could say, well, it was the hallelujah chorus or whatever, as all those had to come after. But Stephen had that glimpse uh, as he's dying, uh, that glimpse of, of heaven, of Christ and his, his glory, the glory of, of heaven. And that's a wonderful thing. And so uh, the Lord Jesus speaks of that here, uh, about his glory in John 17, verse 5. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the earth, or before the world was, that pre-incarnate uh, glory. There are times when, like I say, Stephen saw that glory. Paul, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, saw that glory, uh, the brightness of, of, of God's presence, the, the Lord speaking to him. Now, it's interesting, this is just by the way, but Paul gives three accounts of his, of his conversion. And each time the, the light is brighter, the glory is greater. It's less about him and more about the glory that he saw. So by the time he uh, tells it before Agrippa, uh, the light is a lot brighter as he looks back and thinks of the glory that, uh, that was displayed. And so... Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has been glorified as a result of what he accomplished. Not only, you know, David, of course, as we mentioned in 1 Samuel 17, 25, had those things true of him. But it says he, also, he took the giant's head off, but he also took the giant's armor into his tent, uh, a visible expression of the victory that he won. His head is cut off, but his armor is taken. The Lord Jesus referred to the fact that how can a man come into a strong man's house unless he first bind the strong man and then spoil all his goods. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus did at the cross. He won that victory. Now, positionally, he has this, this glory that was veiled. Uh, Matthew 17, it's unveiled at the Mount of Transfiguration, just for a moment. Uh, his visage, his face was brighter than the noonday sun. Uh, John might have been referring to that in John 1.14, we beheld his glory. Peter certainly refers to it in, in his letter. We, he was there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard that voice uh, from heaven. Uh, but uh, certainly that glory uh, is his. It belongs uh, to him, the highest uh, place been given to him uh, as a result of what he has accomplished. Now we think of positionally as well, there are offices that he bears that weren't true of him in the Old Testament. He is now a great high priest. We sang, I have a great high priest above. He was not the great high priest in the Old Testament. But according to Hebrews chapter 5, 
he is appointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a remarkable thing. Let me just give you an aside too on Melchizedek. It's, uh, here's one of the things I find remarkable about scripture. In Genesis 13, 14, there's three verses that mention Melchizedek. He comes from Jerusalem, shares bread and wine, never heard of again. That's 2,000 years before Christ. A thousand years later, he's never mentioned. Psalm 110, verse 4, David suddenly says there's a priesthood, an order after Melchizedek, a different priesthood. Why not for a thousand years? Where did that come from? How would David even think of it? And then another thousand years go by, and the writer said, Hebrew said, well, here's why that's so important. He couldn't be a priest out of Levi because he's not of that tribe. But there's another priesthood, priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so uh, to me, that's one of the remarkable proofs of Scripture, that that should be true. A king of peace and of righteousness, bread and wine, and then come 2,000 years later and it's becomes really important and significant. So his offices, he's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He's, uh, he's, he's you know, working on our behalf. He's the one who ministers grace. Uh, the gifts are attributed both to the, all to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but he dispenses gifts. And so he has offices that were not true of him before the cross, but he has been lifted up, exalted, and given these uh, these offices. Uh, there's an interesting progression in Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 24, it says he does appear in heaven for us. He's interceding for us. In verse 26, it said he did appear once to put sins away by the sacrifice of himself once for all. In verse 28, it says he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but for Salvation. Interestingly, those three words for appear are different Greek words, but all translated as, as appear. But here, there he is in verse 24. He appears in heaven for us. And Satan bids me to depart. What do we have? We have one who, who, who's there for us. My name is uh, written on his hands, engraved on his heart. And so we have that one before us in glory. And so Positionally, uh, great, great glories. But there's a future glory. There's the prospect that we call, has been called his parousia, his appearing, his coming, his presence. That's going, to, that's going to happen one day. So in John 17, you look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The prayer of the Lord Jesus. Not a wonderful prayer. Uh, is the Father going to answer that prayer? Of course. We'll be there with him. Warren Wiersbe has a neat little three-pronged uh, thing about uh, the assurance of our salvation. He talks about 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. There's the price that Jesus paid. John 14, verse 1 to 3, the promise Jesus made. And here is the prayer Jesus prayed. That's an easy progression. The price Jesus paid, the promise Jesus made, and the prayer Jesus prayed. And so that's what we have here. How do we know we'll be there? Because God the Father will answer 
that prayer. What will it be when we see him? Turn to Titus chapter 2. In Titus uh, chapter 2, we thought uh, previously about the moral glory of the Lord Jesus, verse 11, Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Or perhaps a better rendering is, for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared. And this is a different word for appeared than the three times in Hebrews 9. It's a verb. But then in verse uh, 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here the word appear is a noun. So it's not a verb like in verse 11. Grace was personified. We saw grace upon grace when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is the, not the glorious appearing in the sense of it's uh, spectacular, but it's the appearance of glory. And it's our great God and Savior. Uh, in Greek grammar, when two uh, thoughts like this go together, it's referring to one, one person, one item. And so he is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're uh, talking to a JW and this subject comes up, this is a great uh, phrase to show them. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you go back to Isaiah, there's only one Savior, and yet here the Lord Jesus Christ is called our Savior. So it's a great verse to, to use. But it's the appearing of glory, and that's a, a wonderful thought, that one day we will see his glory, the appearance of glory, the spectacular appearance of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. And so we anticipate that day. We look back. In verse 11, the cross, what he did accomplish. We look ahead in verse 13 to what will happen. It's the, the, the blessed hope we have, that glorious appearing, the appearing of glory of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. What a day that will be, my Jesus, I shall see. And so you think of what scripture uh, says, you know, about the, what will happen in Colossians, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, when we see him, we'll be transformed, he says. These earthly bodies, these bodies of clay, of flesh, will be transformed to be made like unto his body of glory. What a wonderful prospect before us. One day we will be made like him. He is in glory. We will be uh, like him. All that that means, we'll have to wait and see. He, he was able in his glorified body to do things he restricted himself from doing on earth. He came through closed doors. He showed up and disappeared. He did all sorts of things after his uh, resurrection that he didn't do uh, before uh, his death and resurrection. And so that's, that will happen. First uh, John chapter 3 tells us that uh, we, we see him, we will be like him will be made like him, whatever, again, that means, in what sense. Uh, there are theologians who feel that we'll all be middle age. Uh, we'll be like him morally, but also uh, without the aches and pains and without uh, uh, 
the visible effects of aging and so on. You can imagine that uh, no baby would want to go through eternity as a baby or an unborn child as an unborn child. And so in some way, uh, that transformation will take place and we, uh, we will be uh, like him. Now, I want to just point out one other uh, passage or two passages, John 19. Well, probably a few more passages, but John 19, just a contrast. Verse 5, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, a purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Uh, this is a, sort of a famous Latin phrase, ecce or ecce homo, behold the man. But what did they see? Now this is human government. He's the representative of the Roman Empire. He's saying here, behold the man. You read the first four verses, he's been beaten, he's been abused, he's been slapped, we know he's been spit upon, uh, his back has been whipped. Uh, he's crowned with a crown of thorns, a purple robe of mockery, a reed is put in his hand, and he's presented to the crowd in that way. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what the world saw of him. After his resurrection, he doesn't appear to unsaved people at all. He only appears to believers after his resurrection. So this is the last time the world sees him. Well, this phrase occurs again. We don't turn to it, but in Zechariah 6, when he's coming back to earth, God the Father says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. And it says, He will bear the glory. That's how he'll be introduced the second time. Not as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Not with a purple robe of mockery but he'll be clothed in majesty. He will bear the glory. He'll sit and reign on a throne, it says. His reign will be glorious. His peace will be glorious. And so that's, that's what we can anticipate. We'll come with him. And we will see him as presented in all his splendor and, uh, and glory. Uh, Buck quoted for us in, in uh, Psalm 24 this morning in his prayer. It seems that uh, everybody knew what I was going to speak about, so they... <laughs> they took those references. But, uh, you know, be lifted up, you, all oh, your doors, uh, be lifted up, your everlasting gaze. The king of glory will come in. Well, uh, the sentinel says, well, who is the king of glory? And the first response is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But then it's the same things repeated, and the same question is asked. Well, who is the king of glory? And the answer is different. It says the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Uh, we could look at the first instance as him coming back from the cross, coming up to heaven. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's won a great victory. He's ushered into heaven. We could look at the second instance as we're with him. Who is the king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. And we're ushered into, into heaven uh, with him. Interesting, the 24th Psalm is the Psalm that uh, Jews traditionally would read on a Sunday. A psalm, really, that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming rule and, and reign. And so that's a wonderful uh, prospect. Uh, I said only one more reference, but a couple more. Jude, verse 24. Jude. 
Jude verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. And so that's, that's our prospect. Uh, it's interesting, he is able, to him who is able, there's a number of references to that in the New Testament, what he's able to do. Keep, uh, keep us and present us faultless for sure, before his presence, the presence of his glory. That's, that's the prospect we have. Look at over the page, Revelation chapter 1, verse, verse 5. Or we'll break in, it says, uh, To him who has loved us, and wash us from our sins with old blood, as may his kings and priests, our kingdom of priests, our God, our Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then you look at chapter 5. Verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So this thought is through Scripture that glory will be given to him. Uh, three times in the Old Testament, the verses found that uh, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And so that'll be true in a coming day. And then finally, look in, in Revelation chapter 21. Sorry, I lost my. Um, anyway, it's the, the verse that says that there'll be no day or night there, but the glory of God will. 21 and. 20 and verse 3. Yes, okay. Uh, so verse, chapter 22, 21, 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun of the moon to shine in it, or the glory, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. And so his glory will illuminate heaven, and we'll experience that for all of eternity. So what a prospect. So we, we think of the Lord Jesus, we look back at his, his passion. The cross reveals the glory of God in a remarkable way. His present position is glorious, a name above every name, a position above all principality and power, every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, given that position. Those offices, great are the offices he bears. But then the prospect we will see him in his glory. We will share that glory. We'll be with him. We'll come back to earth with him when that glory is displayed. And so what a wonderful, wonderful thing. We remember the cross, but we think of where he is and what will happen as well. And so we can 
Just revel in that and enjoy those thoughts about his, his glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful again for your word and uh, for uh, the fact that it speaks to the person of the Lord Jesus so eloquently to present his glory, the glory of the cross, what to the world was a place of defeat, to the Jewish people was a curse, and yet to us it reveals uh, your glory in so many ways. We thank you too for the position he now occupies far above all principality and power, and we thank you for the prospect that one day our eyes will see the king in his beauty, we'll behold that land that's far off, we'll behold him in all his glory, his splendor, he'll be presented as the branch and he will bear the glory. And so, Father, we thank you uh, for that. We thank you for the assurance we have that one day, because of what he has done and because of our faith in him and acceptance of him as our Savior, we will be with him in glory. And so we thank you for that. Watch over us, guide and direct, help us to be thrilled with these thoughts, to think on these things and not be uh, caught up with the things of the world around us and the uh, just the way the world is, but to focus on the glory of the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.